What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Joe Armstrong. This week, we are continuing our conversation with economist Jolene Hadridge. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, I encourage you to do so. It's episode 148. It has all the setup and the first half of our conversation with Jolene. Thank you for listening, everybody. Let's get into it. What, what, your, what your study here is showing that is low, low input, low output, potentially over the long term, is more financially resilient than a different strategy. Yes, that is what that is okay. what this shows. Is, is this a tortoise versus the hare kind of situation where where we have farms that are pushing it too far one direction in, in terms of trying to advance? I, I, I'm trying to get my head wrapped around what it means on the really big picture. I think it depends on the management style. So I have this friend whose family has a dairy operation and that dairy operation is set up like that hair scenario, right? Like every five to 10 years they expand and it could just be one or two bad years and they could lose it all. And they know that, but it's that thrill of making it through those difficult years that I think they enjoy, right? And this individual has transitioned and her and her spouse now have a much smaller operation and they're the turtle. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, you know, we are fine with our smaller operation. We own almost all of our land. Our bills are paid off. We are comfortable and we're happy being comfortable. But their management style is not to be the biggest and the best. Their management style is how do we generate enough profit to be comfortable and not have to get side jobs to weather those swings. So that's just a difficult question to ask because you need those two groups to push the industry forward. It's just knowing myself, I'm not risk loving enough to be in that hair category. I'm pretty sure. I'm not either. And I think one of the things that we, we haven't discussed yet that we need to talk about is how long cows stay in a herd in general, because what you found surprised me and this, I, I mean, I was basically surprised this whole time I was reading this paper apparently, but there was not a big difference between resilient and non-resilient herds and how long a cow stayed in the herd, right? Yeah. So I think like the average was about three years between the two groups. I don't know the specific number in front of me. I think that average was driven some by those resilient herds. If you look at their culling rate, we're a little bit more aggressive in culling. And I feel like like we didn't present this in the in the paper, but when we dug into the data, they had specific rules. Like once we treat them for mastitis twice, they're gone. They don't hold on to them. Like they were getting rid of those cow, cows much sooner. So I think that pulled some of their averages down because we just had a smaller sample of cows in those smaller herds. Because the reality is our resilient farms were smaller. They were about 100 cows, whereas our non-resilient, the average was about 220. But that range was pretty wide on that non-resilient. So I think some of that's coming into play. But as an economist, it just really surprised me that if my cow broke even in lactation too, why would I get rid of her? I've invested in all of this up to this point. Why wouldn't I milk her 
another three or four years because I know all I have to do is cover that those, you know, annual costs now and her revenue should more than cover that, especially when I'm considering the offspring of that calf. And if she has good genetics, I'm just building my herd over time. And I think that's, that's the thing that was just really surprising to me in this result is like why we don't do that more. I, I mean, it's always been surprising to me. And I feel like you see it every once in a while, a farm here, a farm there that that has a lot of older cows around. And if you ask them why, it's like, because she's an awesome cow, why would I get rid of her? Yeah. And and I, I've always wondered that too, especially when you tell us the, the break-even percentages on first lactation. Why would I take that cow that's already paid for herself and replace her with a cow that potentially has a, a one in five chance of breaking even in first lactation. Now that's that's really oversimplified math based on without considerations for genetics, but but why? And I I I don't get it either. So I maybe that's the next step. Yeah. So that was actually one of the greatest struggles we had in getting this article published is that one of our reviewers was really anchoring on this point is that your genetics become stale if you are not rotating your cows every two years. And, and I understand that perspective, right? If you wanna in, increase genetics and you've, you've bred for that, but from an economics and like capital constraint perspective, I think there has to be some type of middle ground. And especially when we're looking at limited resources, I don't know, it, it seems like keeping that good cow in that's generating that profit over time would make sense to me. And, and I think this is a concept that, that gets more widely accepted on the beef side of things. When we look at good cows sticking around and a lot of older cows stick, sticking around. And, and for me, genetics are advancing. And, and maybe Bradley can comment on this and, and his perspective as a geneticist, but genetics are advancing. And yes, we want to keep them moving forward. But at some point, it's about cash flow and being successful now. And in my mind, and Bradley, you should correct me if you if you can on this. Is that genetic advancement so big? now that we've made a bunch of genetic advancements or is that increase gotten a little smaller and it's less of a justification now in my mind i feel like we're approaching the plateau of that that improvement of gen genetics uh, when it comes to taking it higher and ignoring the fact that you have such a good cow that's proven and i maybe that's my risk aversion too i i just I like proven cows. I like proven bulls. I like animals that you know what they're going to do. They're reliable and, and they provide the cash flow. And we just lost Bradley. So I don't know if he can, he can comment to, yeah. on it later. I was, was going to say that. I'm like, yeah, we call Bradley out and then he just leaves. <laughs> um, you know, Joe, listening to what you're saying and to Jolene, what you're saying as well. Do you see whether it's happening now or that's the path forward of creating some sort of balance in that of, yes, we we can push our genetics, but in a more moderate fashion so that we are also keeping in mind this this idea of, you know, financial resiliency and lifetime break even. Did you see anything like that or do you see that as as a path forward on this? I mean, I'm not an animal scientist, so 
I don't know how much those genetic enhancements are going. And like, I would really like to know, like the economist answer is, if I could know what that dollar value of that genetic enhancement is, or improvement, whatever that is, that marginal increase, and compare it to that differences in these break-evens, I think then we could draw some comparisons, right? And if her milk yield is going to increase substantially, or she has better meat quality characteristics when she's sent to, to harvest, then maybe we can draw some of those conclusions, right? But I think that's the comparison you have to make. You know, I think historically, we were so focused on genetic improvement, right? Like we needed to produce more with less. And that came through with genetic genetics. But we have to couple the dollars with that as well. And the reason why we have to is because the milk market is so volatile in the past 20 years that these dairy farmers, I mean, talk about a stressful occupation. <laughs> like we are all, everyone on this call, we get the same paycheck every two weeks and we know health insurance is covered. And that's not their world. That paycheck changes every two weeks. <laughs> so you know, figuring out what that balance is, you know, all these things come into play. So I'm fairly certain I did not answer your question, Emily, at all. <laughs> and that's okay, you know, um, because now we see that, yeah, maybe we we can dive into that more. And and I am also not a geneticist by any means or an economist. So I really, you know, don't have a foot to stand on here. But yeah, it would be interesting to see of how how can we get that dollar value from genetics like how could we pull that out um obviously raises more questions than answers but that's not a bad thing it's not it helps us inform our research program like this this whole project really came up from questions farmers asked me right they're like how do I know if my cow is breaking even I'm like well, look at this. And then I was like, wait, we don't have the heifer raising cost. We, we don't have all these other things that are factored in. I can tell you what our break even is on an annual basis, but I don't know if this is a first, second or third lactation cow. So let's figure it out. Let's see if we can do it. And, and we did it. Well, and heifer raising costs come up all the time because that, that's a huge expense. And uh, one of our biggest expenses, especially if she, and maybe this is a, not the way an economist should think, but the earlier she fails out, the more impact that that heifer raising cost has. That makes sense. I still think that's one of the hardest places to decrease that cost. And I know it's such a huge factor in all of it, but it's the, it's the, so hard to decrease that cost because there's so many other factors that come into it when it comes to labor, space, all of those things, especially if you're sending them somewhere else to be raised. Do you have any world-solving ideas on that end, Jolene? No, I mean, we, again, this is one of the things that the reviewers nitpicked a bit. Our heifer costs from like when the calf is born to when she first enters a herd all came from Finbin. So these are the numbers reported by farmers. Our challenge was not all of our contributing farms reported that. So we had to use the average for the Finbin system for that. But I felt pretty confident we had that split out by like farm size. Like we we could split it out in a way where I felt comfortable doing that. But we did see pretty drastic variations across, just across our database on that. For the reasons that you're talking about, I think 
it's always hard for us to decide to stop doing something. So you're going to throw everything at that animal so you can get that calf out of her, right? Like you've invested 22 months. You're not going to let her go now. That gets to be hard. I don't, the, the one thing that I will say with this study is that it seemed like our resilient farms didn't push their cows as much. Like they entered the herd a month later, they produced about, you know, a thousand to 2000 pounds less of milk a year, but they had a much lower death rate. They had an aggressive cull rate when the cow wasn't performing, but in general, the cull rate was, you know, well below normal standards. So like, it was just a slightly different strategy where it wasn't like I need to maximize my output of this cow in the shortest amount of time. It's what you came back on. Like I have a long game with this cow. I want to keep her healthy and not run her down so that she can stay in the herd six years. That's something I really like about this paper is, you know, it really focuses on that management piece, which is something we talk about a lot on this podcast, like a lot, a lot, you know, is that, yeah, every farm makes different management decisions just, yeah, based on their goals and, and what they're trying to do. And so I think that's a really important piece of this to keep in mind is that, you know, this paper, I don't feel it's saying doing this and this is wrong and doing this and that is better. It's a matter of here's the information and some of the, you know, financial pieces of that. And that's another piece that we can use in making our our management decisions. Absolutely. I think I said it before. It's not a one-size-fits-all strategy. So picking out what are the pieces that make sense for you that you can apply on your farm and going with that rather than trying to keep up with the Joneses down the road. I think that's where people get in trouble, right? Um, at least that's what I saw growing up. Like everyone wanted to keep getting bigger, keep, you know, expanding. And I think in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was the strategy. But that was just the start of that volatile milk price. And so now we start seeing some of the ebbs and flows that are just, they're really hard to manage around. All the risk management tools that we provide, they even aren't always foolproof when it comes to how this market has been, especially in the past three years. You want to ask Brad his genetics? Question? Yeah, Bradley, are you there now? Oh, hey, I'm here. Yeah. Oh, oh hey, Brad. <laughs> so, so we were just to catch you up. We were uh, you got cut off, but we were discussing basically the value of genetic improvement, and if there's a way to put a dollar value on that, because we can't figure out why people get rid of second lactation cows that have already broke even, and they're they're a good producing cow and they give it up in favor of a cow that has more genetic value. And that doesn't make sense to us. Is there a way to explain that from a geneticist point of view? When we look at genetics, we usually figure it out from a lifetime net merit and with calling in the factor. And if you take a younger animal they're on average going to have a higher lifetime net merit than an older animal. So really that's why, so, so sometimes the, the lifetime net merit is maybe biased towards the younger animals because you're going to have, you know, more profit over that lifetime for a younger animal. 
than you will with an older animal because of lots of different things. Uh, older cow cost more for diseases. Um, you know, they have higher calling rates, you, you name it, and that's all factored into it. So sometimes it's, it's a tough to disentangle genetics from management because the genetics will say that younger animal is going to have more profit than an older cow, but that might not be the case always. Yeah, because to me, when I look at the genetic side of it, and especially considering Jolene's data here, where we're saying that only 20% of our animals break even by the end of their first lactation, it, it makes sense to me to hang on to that animal that's already proven and has already broken even and make more of her rather than getting rid of her. And, and this comes back to the the conversation we've had on this is, do you make your farm fit the cows or do you find the cows that fit your system and your farm? And if you've already found the cow fits your system perfectly and is doing so well, why wouldn't you just make as many of those as you can? I agree. I agree. That's what you, ideally you'd want the cow that fits your system and just clone her however many cows you want and have the same one. Some of this almost comes back to individual cow management, again, even on a larger herd scale, because I, I've talked with other economists and dairy scientists, and they're starting to get back into a calculating economics on an individual cow basis daily or weekly to figure out if this cow is profitable or not. And then you can judge. So you kind of take out that, whether they're a second lactation cow or a fifth lactation cow, all of the economics sort of calculate into it. And, you know, it gets into, do you breed this cow to dairy? Do you breed it to beef? And, and a whole bunch of other factors. But I think it's getting back to the individual cow management again, compared to a herd management when you start thinking in those terms. So we've been talking for a while now, and the, the final question to ask Jolene, which she may not have an answer to, is based on, on what you found here, what do you tell people? You know, you said you had two questions that people ask you all the time. How can I make more money without having more cows? And how do I just stop hemorrhaging money? Do you feel like you are a little closer to answering those now? Well, my normal question back to them when they ask me that is, do you have an enterprise budget on your dairy, like on the dairy enterprise? Because the way that you answer those two questions is getting back to what Brad just said. You need to know what those costs are tied to that cow. And every herd has high producing cows and low producing cows. So assuming that those costs are equal across is not realistic. So my very simple and obvious answer is know what your costs are on your dairy unit. And it is surprising how many people cannot answer that question. I, my parents don't have the dairy cows anymore, but they could not answer that question. I know that. <laughs> and I know of many people who are best in their best intention is to have that number. But most people are dairy farmers because they love the cows. They are not dairy farmers to be economists. So you just need to have a kid who is an economist and then your problems are solved. I mean, it, it comes back to any day-to-day -day life. Know what your budget is and know if you're benchmarking up to it or not. That would be my recommendation. And then you can probably address some of these, these bigger issues. We're going through this right now, you know, looking at why are feed costs so high and how do I manage that without giving up milk yield? 
right? Because I need that milk yield to pay for these feed costs. And now we're in the hamster wheel that we can't get out of. With guests lately, we have been opening it up to questions for us. If you have any, it's your chance to grill Bradley. Oh, and we never gave him a hard time for being late. And, Mm. you know, you're technically his boss now. Exactly. That was when you weren't showing up, Brad. I'm like, well, I guess we can bring this up during his performance review. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was was having a farmer meeting where we were talking about costs, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Um, Well, I guess I can ask this question to all three of you, and I'm sure you all have different answers. But, you know, I think this whole conversation has been about, wow, these numbers are so surprising. And wow, economics is really important on the dairy side. So you each have different specialties. How do you incorporate economics into what you're doing in your extension roles? And and how can we work on it? I don't want to say improving that relationship, but like, what do we need to do to make sure that we can keep this at the forefront, knowing that it is a priority? That's a big question. Uh, M, you want to start? I will start. And I, I feel like I maybe can answer it a little easier, right? So so working in farm safety and health, we we have a lot of, of occupational data about, you know, um, costs of lost time from injuries and and you know costs of things like funerals and workman's comp and and all of those pieces and so that's you know one of the ways i bring economics in into the work that i do is you know really emphasizing that when we have an injury when we are not safe when we are not healthy we are taking money away from the farm or you know even losing money lost productivity whatever it might be so that is a way I use it. Um, and like I said, I, I feel like I have a little easier avenue because people know if they're hurting in the hospital, it's going to be expensive. Um, right. And also most people don't want to be hurt in the hospital, money piece aside. So maybe a little easier for me to put that into my work, right? Um, just because we we have a lot of information about what happens when we have lost time on the farm and because farm safety involves the people on the farm. and. Uh, hopefully we're putting the highest amount of value on our people. And so we consider that side of it too. That makes sense. Brad, you got an answer. I'm still working on mine. From my perspective and the things that I've worked with farmers, I think a yes, helping them to know what their costs are, but also looking at it on a more frequent basis and how the changes that they do or make can affect their bottom line. Because, you know, we, we talk a lot about farms and, and economics and, and you know, I have some farms that I work with, they're on Minnesota farm financial business management groups. And they, you know, they do some things, but a lot are just doing it at the end of the year. You know, when they do taxes, they figure everything out. I think helping farmers, maybe they do quarterly or monthly or whatever it is, because things change a lot on dairies. And the decision that I made about whatever, buying straw in July is maybe affecting me now. Or, you know, so how do those economic decisions happen? And how, you know, do we watch the finances on a more frequent basis? So I think even just getting that out to farmers that, you know, we should be watching our finances on a quarterly basis and not wait till uh, it's tax time. And then it's like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done that or maybe you know now all of a sudden we got the 
we need to go buy a combine because we have way too much money. So doing it more on a frequent, a frequent basis with farmers, I think would help out a lot. I agree with that. I always say um, hash in my checking account doesn't mean I'm making profit. Sometimes it does, <laughs> but it's looking at that frequency to see, you know, yeah, you're maybe covering your bills, but are you also going to have to sell livestock in three months to pay that large tractor payment that's coming due? And if you're checking in on a quarterly basis, you have a much stronger grasp on where that money's coming in and how that works. So. I, I agree. And it's easier to kind of look at milk prices and everything for you from a quarterly basis, because we have no clue what's going to happen to the milk price a year from now and whether so being more prepared and, and knowing what the finances are going, I, I agree more frequently is the better. Okay. I think I finally got mine figured out. So in school, we're taught to push for production, regardless of what that means. You know, it's always more production is better. And as you get out in the real world and you talk with farmers and you figure out what actually matters to them, it changes your perspective, especially from a veterinary standpoint, where we're taught to ask for more production and try to figure out how to do that while also thinking about economics on an individual cow basis. But the more I'm involved with farms, the more I talk to farmers, the more I think it's key to look at a systems approach when we're looking at all of it, including all of the intangibles, I guess I would call them, that make decisions different when we're talking about time, labor, and then this discussion of economics and how much emotion plays into that and sometimes can outweigh economics because not every decision is economics, right? If you want your son or daughter to come home and work on the farm, sometimes you make a decision that isn't the best economically because there's a lot of emotion involved and you're willing to take that risk all of a sudden. So there's a lot of that. And I think what I try to do is start by having a general discussion about what a break-even is, start with partial budgets for easy decisions. And those partial budgets really lead into, well, if I can't figure out how these numbers go into this, this one small decision, how do can I have a handle on the rest of it from a big picture standpoint? So for me, it's just one more piece in the system that I found that I need to account for in, in everything. And most of it is just knowing the farm super well and knowing the farmer really well so that you can have those discussions and it's not super awkward when you're talking finances or looking at the big picture or cost of production because if you don't know the farmer very well and you ask about cost of production even if they know it they're not going to tell you absolutely not that's a very private number it's just one more piece in the whole system for me finances are a very private thing even as human beings as a whole, we don't want to talk about finance. We don't want people to know how much money we make. We don't want them to know what our cost of production is, all of those things. And your point about emotion is really key. Whenever I give like marketing talks, I'm like, okay, the price of corn has went up 30 cents and you have a bin full and it hasn't went up in 30 cents in like 12 months. Are you going to sell that corn? And what does everyone in that room say? No, it's going to go up. So farmers are eternal optimists. 
we only believe the price will go up and there's a 50% probability of both, right? So it's so hard to make those trigger points, right? When corn is this, we sell. <laughs> and sometimes it's good to just have someone who's not tied to that emotion that's doing it for you and you you can't go back on it. Um, so yeah, the, those things all feed together. It's what makes my job so exciting, right? There's <laughs> always something new thrown at you. Absolutely. And I agree. When we're talking calling, when we're talking all these things, having a list of things that say, here's the criteria, we're going to follow this. And then knowing that you're probably going to break that, you got to decide on like, what's going to break that? Do you have a favorite cow in the barn? If you do, you better talk about it now, because if she pops up on that criteria list, you got to make a decision. So I, I agree. I think there's there's a lot to think about. Emotion plays a big piece of it as well fun story with this project. We did have a few, I'm going to call them show cows in our data set that we pulled out. And how we knew that they were special cows is that all the cows in that herd had like a number and then someone's name was like Daisy. And it's like, delete Daisy. We know that Daisy costs way too much money. Get her out of the study. <laughs> and we still allocated the cost knowing that there was another cow in there. But it was like, nope, if they that name is different from everything else. We know that it's not the standard and we have to account for that. That makes sense to me. That That is definitely a real life scenario. Yeah. Any other questions for us, Jolene? Nope, that was it. Awesome. All right. I think we've talked long enough. We'll see what the time on this. It might end up being two episodes just because we had so much to talk about. <laughs> Hopefully we can get on Jolene's schedule in the future as well. We can talk more about whatever she wants to talk about. Thanks for being here, Jolene. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for having me. All right. If you have questions, comments, or skating rebuttals to today's episode, you can email those to themoosroom at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. You can also call and leave us a voicemail, and that number is 612-624-3610. You can find us on Twitter at UMN Moosroom and find us on the web at extension.umn.edu. Bye. Bye. Bradley. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>